You can turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. We will continue our journey this summer to walk the path of wisdom as the series that we have chosen to look at this summer for a study together as a church. And we want to walk the path of wisdom because what we just sang is true at the end of that path uh, is the Lord on high. And that's who we are sojourning towards is our, our life with him. He is our hope in life and death. And what a beautiful song, what a confession uh, to be reminded all of those blessings are ours and 10,000 abide in Christ. And so morning, wonderful to start with the kids singing. Uh, thankfully, there was no Irish jig for me. Never will be. You can count on that. Um, if you noticed, it's a certain child in the middle of the stage, not sure who put her there. I, it's okay. I, did, I actually really enjoyed watching, uh, you may have missed it, head down, uh, reverent would be what I would call her, <laughs> and uh, hands folded, but just her little pinky was dancing. So I'm proud of that wonderful princess. But that's, that's me dancing all the time on the inside. Pastor Curtis got us started off on the right foot to wisdom's path last week in Proverbs 1-7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you missed that message, you need to go back and give it a listen, because fearing God is the first step in walking in wisdom with God through the wide and wild world that we are in. And I wanted to kind of capitalize on that imagery going into today, talking about walking on wisdom's path as we continue our journey together as a church. And as a reminder in the Bible, that's a common image. There are only two paths we walk in this life. Psalm 1 says it right out of the gates, the beginning of the 150 Psalms and the Psalter, as if it stands as a sentinel to remind any who are going to come in to worship God. The Psalter is the worship manual for all believers. But the opening Psalm, Psalm 1, says at this gate, you could only take one of two ways to enter into true worship of God. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. There is no other path. Those are your only options. And it says at the end of that blessed psalm, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He is not unaware of the path that we choose every day for our lives. He knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that's what's set out in Scripture very clearly. And then Jesus in Matthew 7 teaches that there is a wide road that leads to destruction. And there is a narrow road. That leads to eternal life. And in Luke 13, 24, Jesus says, strive, work, agonize even is the word. Used of Christ agonizing in prayer in the garden. Strive to enter by the narrow path. That's an effort. That doesn't happen naturally. To end up on the righteous path. To take the narrow road that leads to eternal life. It's hard work. It's wise work. It's righteous work. And Jesus even says that many can and will make it on the wide path. But who makes it on the narrow path? Very few. It's God's word, not mine. 
So we need help if we need anything on how we can walk the wise path. And and that's what Proverbs exists for. It's a compilation, hundreds of wise sayings, not meant to be broke open and read like a fortune cookie. Okay, I got mine for today. No, it's a collection to say to walk that narrow path that leads to eternal life, to not end up on the easy and the broad way to destruction. You need all the wisdom you can get. And Proverbs gives you the signs to stay on the path. And so we'll look at a few of them today to get the help that we need. In Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, a teaching from a father to a son by way of a grandfather. So follow along as I read Proverbs 4, 1 to 9. Solomon says, Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. and She will guard you. Love her. And she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. May he bless the preaching and hearing of it this morning. Maybe you've heard of the term deconstruction. You don't need to be a linguistic expert to fathom what that word means. Last summer I constructed a championship softball team. (laughs) This summer I am attempting to reconstruct a championship softball team. But Curtis is attempting to deconstruct my championship softball team. Building, rebuilding, and deconstruction would be to unbuild. Historically, most credit 60s French philosopher Jacques Derrida with this idea that you can not have a text, that you can uh, find true meaning in because you can't get back to the original author and his intent. So it was a literary criticism as much as it was a uh, philosophical worldview that anything that you think you know, you don't really know. Because it didn't come from you. And any attempt to try to get back to the root or the source of it is going to be a fool's errand. So in short, this idea of deconstructionism maybe was the beginnings of what we call postmodernism which became 
somewhat known, talked about in worldview in the 2000s, that you really can't get back to any objective truths. You can't have some big narrative called a meta-narrative that explains all of life. It's all relative. And though that started 60 years ago, it's made its way into the church. And you might have heard of people deconstructing their faith and even saying that has led them to deconversion. As if you can make the choice to unconvert yourself. But we won't go down that path. I think growing up, teenager, youth group, 90s, maybe I had friends who would say after they went away to college and came back, on a break, you know, I'm really questioning my faith. But, you know, if you throw a 25-cent word on it like deconstruction, suddenly it can be a fad and impressive to deconstruct. And today it's not just an individual thing. It's actually a movement by some within evangelical Christianity who would call themselves liberal Christians on the theological side. They're questioning, do we need to really have certain doctrines that we have to believe in? The answer is yes. Just in case you're wondering, (laughs) liberal Christianity is an oxymoron, theologically speaking. It's not going to be liberal enough if you still call it Christianity to please the world. But when you question the core doctrines of the Christian faith, you no longer have it. When you start to throw them aside at your leisure and say, do we really need the virgin birth? Do we really need inerrancy? Well then, friend, you've just sold Christianity down the river. What is it then you're building your foundation on? If you don't believe in an inspired Bible from God, you're building it on man's reason. So the question at the heart of our passage today is, how do we keep the wisdom that we already have? How do we not go down the path of deconstructionism? If we've started with a fear of the Lord, very clear is the theme, the thesis of the book of Proverbs in Proverbs 1.7 How do you stay the path? How do you not get allured like the sirens calling out to the sailors to start to take your ship down a different path? The path that would lead to folly and unbelief. Jeremiah 6.16 gives us the answer. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and seek and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. So walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. That's how you stay on the path. You go back to the ancient, wise path that God has given us in His Word. The idea of deconstructing the faith wants you to tear down the truths of God you've been taught and rebuild with man's wisdom. Your own emotions, opinions, intuitions become the new architects, masons, and carpenters of your new house of unbelief. And Jesus says, that's a fool's house. It'll be what? Decimated when the rains come and the winds blow. And what kind of house will stand? He said the Wise man will build his house on God's word and act on them. And today we get the blueprint. Walking in a way of God's wisdom comes down to three things that we'll see in Proverbs 4, 1 to 9. A plea to listen to wisdom's call. 
the pursuit of a lifetime chasing after wisdom and wisdom's payout in the end. A plea, a pursuit, and a payout. One pro tip for the book of Proverbs as, as you get into this, and I alluded to it earlier in how we approach the book of Proverbs. Proverbs are designed to make you think. Wow, right? But we forget that because we say things like, a proverb a day keeps the devil away or something, as if it's just um, gulp and done. Any individual proverb in and of itself is wonderful. It's God's wisdom, but it's meant to slow you down, not speed you up, brother and sister. So it's designed, the point of the proverb, the, the imagery in it, the contrasts sometimes, or the similarities are designed by the pen of Solomon, but by the brilliance of the Holy Spirit to stop and make you think. So I call the Proverbs the espresso shot of Scripture. What are you supposed to do with an espresso shot? Sip it. Chug it. No, that's what you do with one of those gross monster energy drinks. Chug it. Just ride that high for like 13 seconds. But an espresso shot, like a good one, is designed to be sipped and to slow you down. And it will kick in <laughs> if you let it. And that's what the Proverbs are designed to do. So let's slow down and take our time through Proverbs 4, 1 to 9. Starting with verse 1, the plea. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. Hear, O sons, when you read particularly Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, that is a heading every time you see that. It's a new, small pericope, a a unit of teaching. Whereas once you get to chapter 10 and on, just 30,000 foot view of the Proverbs, then you're getting to those rapid fire, you know, open them one at a time type things, but you will find when you see a heading in Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, a call, hear, O sons, hear my son, my son, give attention. That's, that's a clue from the writer. He has a little bit of a lesson for you to see, and that's how we even get the parameters for 1 through 9 today. Now, don't move past too quickly the sons and the father motif of the Proverbs genre. This is also important to remember. This is an actual father teaching his son. And this is also a king teaching Israel's sons. It's a both and. It's familial, as in the home, to be the primary place for moral instruction to live a godly life in Israel. Started in the home. Let's remember that. But also it extended to, in the ancient Near East, Not just Israel, this would have been common for any royal courts. Solomon is speaking here as both a dad and the king. So as a dad, he's calling out and he's making a plea to his son. And this was the way it was to be. This is primarily how wisdom was to be passed on. One writer says, the father and the mother not the professional teacher or the pastor or the government official, has the most profound responsibility and opportunity to lead their children in the right way. 
Why? Because only a parent can implore their child to do what's right with the depth of love necessary. You love your kid. And you'll do whatever it is to give them wisdom to a degree you may not anybody else. That's the heart of the call to hear, O sons. First, let it hit your heart. This was a family affair. This was a family responsibility that Solomon remembered by knowing Deuteronomy chapter 6. The call in Deuteronomy 6, 5. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Verse 7, and to keep it by what? Teach it diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Diligent teaching. Talking and walking. Sleeping and standing. Famous uh, evangelist of the First Great Awakening, George Whitfield said, Every house is a little parish, every father a priest, and every family a flock. Dads, I know we're a week away, but do you feel that? That's calling you out. That's your responsibility primarily. And that's where the best sermons will be both preached and modeled. Because you can't fake it there. My kids will see right through this guy to the guy they see later today. So it better match up. It's the highest level of accountability outside the accountability I have before God. So it nails it down to the heart. So it's a family Affair to teach and to pass it on from parents to children. But it was also a royal court affair. In the time of Solomon, it was a tradition for older wise men to gather the younger men and teach them in proverbial form, passing on wisdom to them in formal training. That's why we aren't shocked, skeptics of the Old Testament, when the book of Proverbs has similarities to ancient Sumerian and Akkadian and Egyptian wisdom literature. Because it was a common practice and if you were a person of nobility and you met other people of nobility from other religious backgrounds but there were some axioms that were true and passed on then our faith doesn't fall apart when there's sections of the book of Proverbs we have that look like sections of what? Other ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. It's why when I'm hanging out Coaching my kids' football team. And the guy that doesn't believe in Jesus says, no pain, no gain. And I go, that's right. No pain, no gain. We could both agree that that's a pretty good axiom. It actually is attributed to Ben Franklin, of all people. There are no gains without certain pains. Sounds better, I think, in the no pain, no gain way. Uh, but, but just to say that sometimes, you know, the question of can we say that our scripture is unique and, and completely untouched or uh, unconnected to any other comparative religions. And we say, well, in the context of the time of Solomon, those surrounding 
communities, those pagan areas, they would have had some axioms that would have been passed on that might have sounded similar and been picked up and passed on even within Solomon teaching the sons of Israel. So that was a long walk for a short drink of water to say, no big deal, relax. Axioms are meant to be remembered, easily passed on with some type of image. But the thrust in verses 1 to 4, the plea is Solomon trying to get across this certain truth in verse 1. Give attention that you might gain understanding. And that, that again, is to make you stop and think. We can pass over that and just say, yeah, yeah, whatever, get on with it. But think about it. you got to give something to what? Gain something. you got to give something up, which is your attention to whatever that thing is that's distracting you. Even right now, listening to a sermon on a Sunday morning in a church, there might be some other thought, interest, whatever that's occupying your mind, that you got to give that up if you're going to gain this here. That, that's what's right there. You just see the words. Give attention, which means my attention can't be somewhere else in order to gain understanding. i got to give up attention from something worthless to gain something worthwhile. You know, and there's always the idea that, you know, we... Well, Adam, you know, cut these people a break in 2022. They have poor attention spans. You know, it's less than a goldfish. <laughs> Which, when I hear that stuff, I question it. And then I research it. And come to find out, scientists have been studying goldfish for 100 years. And they actually have an ability to remember... Uh, Kulam Brown, an expert in fish cognition. I didn't know that's out there. So kids, if you're still deciding on your major. <laughs> Mr. Brown, Dr. Brown, sorry. An expert in fish cognition at some university in Australia I can't pronounce. Uh, says that they, they can remember things. They can remember to go back to a certain side of that boring bowl you put them in to get their food every time. And that's what he says. Most people that want to, you know whatever on the fish and say, yeah, they don't got any attention span. It's because you put them in an environment. Who would have an attention span when you're just in that dumb little bowl? No, nothing around it, just swimming in laps all day. Put them in a nice tank. Then you'll see those goldfish do something impressive. I report you decide. My point here is this. Cut out the excuse of attention span. We give attention to where our affections are. When you love something, you pay attention to it. As you decrease in your love to that object of your affection, so goes your attention. That far exceeds any argument for my attention span. I can't possibly. When you're interested in that new Netflix series that you can binge for eight hours straight, two things are happening. One, we're lazy creatures and it's not very hard to sit and do something like stare for eight hours. It just appeals to our laziness, especially if you got queso, you know, it's just a good time. But it also appeals to our affections. There's probably something in that new series that you've really wanted to see. And so you'll sit there and endure it. If I put on the screen right now a map that leads to a buried treasure in Hickory, you'll listen up. Even if I just said, I'm going to only flash it on there for five seconds. And it's a point out in Lake Hickory somewhere. 
man, you would be, okay, hurry up, screenshot it, whatever, you know, take a picture. Because you'd say, I want that. And that's the call of wisdom. Do you want that? So he's offering it. Verse 2, I give you sound teaching. Don't abandon my instruction. This is the Father's plea. Listen so that you can learn. And if you aren't interested in understanding and learning, then you won't listen and get it. And then he goes back. And this is why I say this is not just father to son, Solomon to his son. This is Solomon remembering in a unique way, unlike anywhere else in the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, something that his dad taught him who was King David. Which is why if there's ever a section in the Proverbs to maybe, you know, put a big circle around the whole section, it's 4, 1 to 9 because this is an intersection of a pretty a pretty potent part of your Bible. Solomon, who outside of Jesus was called the what? Wisest man to ever live. His wisdom intersecting with who? King David, the man after God's own heart. You want that combination? You know, everybody's, ah, I, you know, I'm a head Christian. I just need the wisdom. I'm a heart Christian. I just need to live it. Hey, how about this one right here? Boom. We got the intersection of both the wisest outside of Jesus And David loved God with his whole heart, like anybody else. And this is Solomon remembering something. And, and, you know, just use your sanctified imagination. King David, we don't get a glimpse of him being the dad that's what? Calling his boys around him and teaching them a lot. He's the warrior king. He's dominating the surrounding nations. A man of bloodshed. But there was a time, we're getting it here from Solomon, remembering when he did say, son, come here, I have something to teach you. And apparently it worked. Look at verse 3. When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me. So we do get this moment, though. The words didn't escape his memory because they got stuck to his, verse 4, heart. That's how they stick. Charles Bridges wrote, Words are often lost to our memory, but retained in our hearts. You know, most of us got advice from our parents that was sealed to our hearts. We didn't um, sit down, probably, and write down what they were telling us. But if you can repeat maybe some proverb, some axiom, decades later, it wasn't because you were taking notes with mom and dad, were you? It was that your heart was interested in learning it. So some of the, you know, my dad's, Adam, don't let your yearnings exceed your earnings. Stuck with me. Think I'm doing okay? Not letting my yearnings exceed my earnings. Adam, there's a lid for every pot. Mary, you know, stuck with me. Don't put a $10 hat on a five-cent head. That one was helpful when I was choosing my major of communications over pre-med. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Why does it work? Because wisdom is first and foremost, verse 4, a matter of the heart. There's a tenderness in verse 3 that isn't for us to pass right on by. For how there's a season in life, parents. There's a tenderness of the heart of a child that you have to capitalize on. Where the soil is soft. 
It's, it's a way that you can instruct and, and fill the heart with your love for God and His Word unlike any other time in life. Are you capitalizing on it? Bishop J.C. Ryle said, A boy may bend an oak when it is a sapling, but a hundred strong men cannot root it up when it's a full-grown tree. When it's tender and it can be guided and shaped is the time to be pouring it on in full. And that's what happened with Solomon when he was tender and the only in the sight of his father and mother, and then those words, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. So what is it? He's, this was the build-up. This was the plea. Son, I want you to listen. Proverbs 23, 26. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. This is the moment where he, he wants to instruct his son, but we can't rush past the plea, the plea to listen up. Wisdom's calling to all of us today calling out, are you willing to give up your attention here to gain something over there? And now comes the call to pursue it as the passion of your heart. Point number two, verses five through seven, wisdom's pursuit. It's to be found. Are you seeking it? It's calling out to you. Are you listening? Is your heart open to receive it? And it is a matter of the heart. And now here comes the call to pursue it. And if you look at five through seven, you see a little bit of a pattern. Because you see repetition. And again, this has a form of poetry to it. You see acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. And then in verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with your acquiring, get understanding. And that forms what they they call a chiasm. Which is, there is a, a starting call and then there is an ending call. It's a sandwich. And in the middle of it is the heart of the call. And what's the heart of the call to acquire wisdom? Verse 6, to love it. Right there in verse 6. It's the bracketing of acquire it, get it, pursue it, go after it, is driven by the heart of it, which is in verse 6, love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom's pursuit comes from the heart, the greatest motivator in the world. Why do I say that? John 3.16, ring a bell, for God so loved the world. That he sent his son. What motivated God to send his son? God demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Love motivates. You give attention to your affections. You pursue what you prize. Men, said it before, I'll say it again. It explains the mystery of you marrying up. It wasn't your wit, looks, wallet. It was your pursuit. You weren't going to stop at anything. Congratulations. Explains everything in this room. There's my meta-narrative. Take that postmodernism. But if you love God, you'll pursue His wisdom. Deuteronomy 6.5, the call is to love the Lord your God with your heart and soul and strength. Jesus repeats it in Mark 12.30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. John 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Loving God and seeking God's wisdom go hand in hand. And we see that the heart of Love for wisdom and what she offers is bracketed by acquire and acquire and go after and seek it. But that won't happen if there's not a heart of love in the middle of it. 
If you really don't see it and value it and have an affection for it and find your joy in wisdom and want to walk according to God's ways, you won't acquire and acquire and acquire and acquire. I mean, he uses that word four times. You'd think we'd catch on. And it's a word for a business transaction in the Old Testament. There's there's a monetary value to this word, acquire wisdom, this pursuit of it. It means there's an exchange. And I think that might have been important in the instruction of King David to his son Solomon, who they would have had a lot, right? They would have understood transactions, having a lot of things that could have taken Solomon's attention away from gaining wisdom. And you could see David saying to his son Solomon, Son, you have all this stuff around you, but the most valuable thing you can attain in this life is the wisdom that will lead you to fear God. So get after it. It's right here. And so the striving comes in. As we talked about earlier, Jesus' call in Luke 14, 23, strive to enter the narrow way, the narrow path. The righteous path, the wise path. Look back at Proverbs 2 and look at this language of acquiring and seeking and searching. My son, if you will receive my words, here's what you're going to do. You're going to treasure the commandments within you. You'll make your ear attentive to wisdom. You'll incline your heart to understanding. You'll cry for discernment. You'll lift your voice for understanding. You'll seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. That's an entire experience of eyes, ears, feet, hands, mouth, to get wisdom. If you value her, if you want her, if you pursue her, it's going to take everything in you to get her. And that's what Solomon is saying in Proverbs chapter 2. You'll throw yourself into it. That's your part. Eyes, ears, mouth, body, all of it going and searching for this treasure of wisdom. What's God going to do to respond to that? Here's what he gives you in return. Proverbs 2.5. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord. Then you will discover the knowledge of God. Why? Because God's not playing games with you. The Lord will give you wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. When you're crying out for it in verse 3, he's giving it back to you in verse 6. He stores it up. He's not poor and bankrupt or pinching pennies with wisdom. He has it stored up for you. And it's a shield to you. And it'll guard you, verse 8. And it'll preserve you, verse 8. And you'll be able to discern righteousness and justice and equity. Why? Verse 10 tells you. Because wisdom will take entry into your heart. It'll make its home in your heart. But it doesn't find its way home to your heart without you, what? Pursuing it, acquiring it, getting after it, seeking it out. So in wisdom's pursuit, David tells Solomon, you got to see it and seek it for the treasure it is. And when you do, God is generous to give it. He's not playing a game of hide and seek. He'll give it. Sounds a lot like Matthew 7, doesn't it? That Jesus is... Repeating a principle here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it'll be open. Promise, reward. Asks a question. 
What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or he asks for a piece of fish, his dad won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Why wouldn't we take God up on his offer of wisdom? If we know there is no bait and switch, he's not playing any tricks, it's not a game of hide and seek. Wisdom is able to be sought and wisdom is able to be found. So the question is, have you been looking for it in all the wrong places? Or maybe I'll back that up. Are you even interested in it? For some of you today, do you even know wisdom's source? It's actually not in these words. It's in the word. It's in Jesus Christ who is called the wisdom from God in 1 Corinthians 1.30. If you are not in Christ today, then I, I'm not trying to call you to just live some wise, moral, upright life. Though, of course, society would benefit by it. But the heart of it all is for you to know Christ. And to see that if you try to seek wisdom apart from Christ, you are on a fool's errand. Because you'll search for it and you might find bits and pieces of it and it'll take you all over the intellectual map. But you'll never know where X marks the spot and it's Jesus Christ. And He is the one that actually when you receive Him into your life as Lord and Savior, transforms you from the inside, gives you a heart to love His Word and to do His Word. And even so much by the renewing of the Holy Spirit in your life, renews your mind. Because you can read what's in front of, maybe you have a Bible right now, maybe you don't if you're a guest here. There should be one on the seat in front of you. Use it today. And you could understand what these words say. And you might even be able to take a lucky guess at what they mean. But they won't change your heart apart from the work of God in His Spirit to change you. And you've got to call out for that before you call out for anything else. God, be merciful to me, the fool, the sinner, who says in his heart there is no God. The first change you need to make today, if you're looking to walk a path of wisdom, is to turn to the all-wise one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he came down from heaven to earth and took on flesh and walked 33 years Never sinned once. Not an external action. Not even in an internal motive or a thought. A perfect life. And a perfect life that went to the cross to die. For sinners like me. See the end of yourself. The end of your own wisdom. The end of your own intelligence. The end of your own understanding. And say nothing. None of that. Matters anything before God if I haven't trusted in Christ as Savior. If I haven't given Him my life because God gave it to you to begin with. You're His. You're His creation. He made you wonderfully in His image. But sin has corrupted you from the inside out. And so now you need help from the outside in. You need to call out to God and ask for Him to save you. That's how you begin with the fear of the Lord. 
understanding you will stand before him and you will give an account for your life. And what will you say in that moment? All the wise sayings and all the things that you could have studied won't mean anything when you stand before God. Except one thing. Jesus Christ, he is my righteousness. Jesus Christ, he is my life. Jesus Christ, he is my savior. Every answer you will give before God one day in judgment will be Christ or yourself. And if it's Christ, everlasting life is yours. And if it's self, you'll have nothing. So give your life to Christ today. Come to him. Seek God in his grace and his mercy who extends it to sinners because he is good and he is kind and he is loving as much as he is just. And you could have Christ today. For the rest of us, our pursuit of wisdom is one that we can seek in the book of Proverbs because we've come to know that the source of all wisdom is Christ. He is the treasure that we seek. And these wise words inspired by the Spirit through Solomon commend us to continue down the path to not fall back. To keep pressing on to wanting to grow in wisdom, to live a life before God that's pleasing to Him. And there is even in that a payoff, which is our last section here. Wisdom's payout. For the believer, I mean, it could be easy for some in here to question it. You might say, hey, I've, I've lived long enough, Adam. What's still in it for me? You know, I know th this proverb, it's for the young people. And it is for the young people, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 4 says it, to give wisdom to the naive and to the young, knowledge and discretion. So if you're young in this room, Proverbs is for you. It's trying to warn you before you walk down the path of life. It's saying learn and then live, not live and then learn. But you know what? You know, that next verse just kind of stops anybody else in your tracks because it says right after to give youth knowledge and discretion, a wise man, you, those of you who have wisdom already, you've been walking with the Lord, a wise man will hear and increase in learning. So you're not off the hook either. Proverbs is for everybody, young and old, because none of us have arrived. And we're also offered even more. Look at Proverbs 8 and 9, the ending of this, wisdom's payout. It's personified with uh, the idea of lady wisdom, calling out in the street, not in a nagging voice, but in a nurturing song that says, if you prize her, she will exalt you. If you honor her, uh, if she will honor you if you embrace her. She'll put on your head a garland of grace and present you with a crown of beauty. This is, this is uh, language of the victor in some athletic event. Showing that you've, you've come in first place. You've finished at the front, not at the back. There's a promise that if you prize wisdom, you will be given a prize. There is a return on that investment. That's why Proverbs 23, 23. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Because it's gaining compound interest in your life to bring more blessing back to you than you've given to it. Now, I know some of you might say, wait a second, You're, it's starting to sound like this is all just like, it's just a give and take. Isn't that kind of like a prosperity gospel? Like I give something here, God gives something back to me. Well, these are promises of God and we need to take them as that. It's simple faith. Do I read Proverbs 8 and 9 and believe God in his word? 
Do I believe him that if I prize wisdom and if I embrace wisdom that I'm never going to encounter any calamity in my life? Certainly not. Because you have to take the totality of Scripture. Man is born to trouble, his sparks fly upward in Job. There will be suffering and challenge and obstacles in our ways, but we look at the, the end end game and know that even if I prize wisdom down here and embrace wisdom down here and I might not get the fullness of that reward down here, I certainly will in heaven. And that's not a cop-out. It's not for a Christian to talk out of both sides of his mouth. It's the truth of it. There is reward here for wisdom. And if you apply the principles of the book of Proverbs, the, the, the maxims, the general truths, most of the time you will reap what you sow from them. Could there be exceptions to it? Yes. A lot of minds immediately go to a verse like, Parents, train your children in the way they should go, and when they're older, they won't depart from it. And if you just take that one proverb in isolation and say, I trained my kid in the way of the Lord, and they walked away from it, it's a sham. Well, see, Proverbs is like a whole pie and not a slice. And some people want to pull just one piece out and think they did it. But I would ask you the question, if you think that's true, did you apply the whole of wisdom from the book of Proverbs to your parenting? I mean, not just the verses on parenting. But the verses on your speech, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat of its fruits. See, that's a piece of the pie too. What about the way of walking in wisdom and the company you kept? And then you add those pieces in and you look at the total and say, that's how Proverbs is to be seen. Not in isolation, one little verse that I pull and I say, that's my life verse and it better come true or else I'm out of here. It's a collection. And you take it all as one. Every ingredient goes in to make the pie. Not just, I'm just going to have this one and hold it out and say, if this doesn't come true, I don't believe any of it. That's not how the Proverbs work. It's the whole collective, not the individual verse that we put our hope in. And built together, then you can expect God to bring back the reward on His promise that He's made. The payout here is if you rightly esteem wisdom and you rightly value wisdom, wisdom will esteem you. And some of you have seen this payout in your life, haven't you? Have you seen the return on it when you've walked according to wisdom? Have you had those moments where, where you actually in your mind like, I think I just did something wise and look what happened. It actually didn't occur for me until I was 29. True story, I, was, I had proposed to Shannon, uh, we sat down to dinner, and I was just feeling really good about it. Imagine that. And uh, it was a journey to get there. And a mentor of mine texted me, congratulations Adam, and I remember the text, you've made a wise choice. And I was like, I did. I really made a wise choice. This is great. And I felt like that garland of grace was on my head. And to double up on the moment, she was so excited. We sat down to that steak dinner. She couldn't eat her steak. So I got double steak. I'm like, this is really true. I got the crown of beauty, the garland of grace. It can just all stop right there. 
But honestly, that was a moment. I, there's been very few where in God's kindness to me, I really thought this was the result of a wise path. And that's his grace. But that's also taking God up on his word and following what he instructs in that wise path. So what's the catch? Because there is a catch here. And it's back in verse 5 and 6. Just as 5 and 6 are the heart of this passage saying that you need to love her and she'll watch over you. The catch of the pursuit of wisdom and its payout is also in 5 and 6. And it comes by way of progression. Do not forget. Do not turn away. Do not forsake. You see, as much as there is reward in wisdom, there's warning. Don't forget wisdom. Start with that. Because that's the first thing we do, isn't it? We just forget. We don't remember. We, we let this fall by the wayside. And we start to forget that which we know is true about God and His world. And then we move from forgetting to turning away. Avoiding. Because it's really easy to avoid wisdom's call when you haven't been listening to her, isn't it? You get yourself out of the Word of God for a while, it's really easy to not obey the Word. Because you've forgotten it, and now you have no conscience to not avoid, to just go down the fool's path. Yeah, I could say this time and time again as a pastor and talking to someone who is on the wrong side of a bad decision. And we talk about how'd you get there. And then I just ask a question How was your time in the Word? How was your communion with God? How was your prayer life? And 10 times out of 10, there was none. I've not one time. Met a person on the wrong side of a bad decision, a foolish decision, a decision with real consequences. And they said, you know, my walk with the Lord was great. Man, I was in the Word every day praying. My communion was just wonderful. I've never yet to meet that incident. So you think that's a real warning or it's just words? Don't forget. Don't turn away. And the final and the worst part, don't forsake her. Don't abandon her. Because when you forget and when you avoid, where's it going to end? Where's the, where's the, where's the sign going to be that you're about to go over the ledge? It's right there telling you, but you don't always see it coming. But it's coming for you. That if right now you're sitting here and you have been out of the word and avoiding accountability, you don't know when that turn in the road off the cliff is coming. But it's there. And it's called abandon. And it's called desert. And it's, it's called forsaking. Do you heed wisdom's call and warning right there? You know, the tragedy of this section is that the writer didn't listen to his own words. You know that about Solomon's life, don't you? 1 Kings 11. This is... About 20 years into his reign. And Solomon's got it all by this point. Chapter 10 says he's got all the gold. Says he has all the horses. And if you want an interesting parallel to this, go read Deuteronomy 17. And see what it says 500 years earlier about when you have a king Israel. 
Don't acquire more wealth than you need. More horses, which was symbolic of power. And marrying foreign, multiplying wives, which was... Polygamy wasn't the issue as much as it also was idolatry. That those, in, in the time of kings, you meet a king from another nation. He offers you a princess as a bride. And with that brings what? Her false gods. So you can read Proverbs or Deuteronomy 17 and see the warnings. And then 500 years later in the life of Solomon, see him blow it. And it culminates in 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. And they name and list them Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor associate with you. For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And Solomon held fast to these in love. Verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. That word turned away there is the same one in Proverbs 4. The same warning that David gave Solomon that he remembered, he forgot. And you're telling me if the wisest man in the world who God gave a spirit of wisdom to can't forget it that you won't? Or that I won't? Turned his heart away after other gods. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. As the heart of David, his father, had been who gave him that advice that he passed on in Proverbs 4. That's not just irony, that's tragedy. And that's for us. The children of God. To first hear that call and heed that warning. So today, maybe ask yourself some questions as you reflect and we wrap up. Step one. Call it indifference. Are you growing cold to the truth of God's wisdom in your heart? Did you come eager to learn from God's word today? Or you're eager to go today and get back into it? Step two, avoidance. Have you been avoiding the call to heed God's wisdom? Matters of your heart. Are you dreading someone wanting to actually get to know you, who you really are and what you really think? Will you go out of your way this week to avoid a conversation with, you know, with someone that's coming for you? That goes from indifference to avoidance and abandonment. Are you on the edge of jumping out? Have you already been so indifferent, cold, and avoiding, and even plotting your path to run as fast as you can and as far as you can away from Christ? Here's the thing. I don't know where anybody falls on that list, but I do know the solution. It's to turn back to Christ. It's to turn back to Christ. It's his is the voice of wisdom calling you right now in your heart to come back. To turn away from the path of foolishness you're on and come back to him. Those are the ancient paths Jeremiah 6.16 says that I read earlier. That this, what a wonderful verse. And in them you will find rest for your souls. You know, there's only one other place in scripture that uses that language. You'll find rest for your soul. Matthew 11.29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. You need that this morning? Christ offers it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the wisdom of your word. The call of your word. The call to, to heed 
call to hear, the call to obey, the call to apply, the call to strive. But in it all, we know that it's not us, but Christ in us. And for that, we thank you. That you are there, Christ, gentle and lowly, gracious and kind, calling us back to you where your yoke is easy and your burden is light and we find rest for our souls and you and you alone. So take these truths, we pray, and Spirit, minister to our hearts, comfort us, build us and strengthen us, we ask in Christ's name.